0: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I'm going to talk about the word doomscrolling, and in honor of Bill and Ted, we're going to talk about each other versus one another. I confess that I am a doomscroller—a big, big doomscroller scroller. Now, if you aren't sure what that means, the definition uploaded to Urban Dictionary in March 2020 by a user who goes by Penelope Penguin is pretty much perfect. Penelope wrote, It's when you keep scrolling through all your social media feeds, looking for the most recent, upsetting news about the latest catastrophe. The amount of time spent doing this is directly proportional to how much worse you're going to feel after you're done." For example, dude, stop doom-scrolling. It's only going to make you feel worse. I can't. The dopamine loop is too strong. It's also been called doom-surfing, but doom-scrolling has completely won out as the word people use to describe or bemoan the behavior. You can see on Google Trends that both words emerged around the same time in late March, but in late May, doom-scrolling as a search term took off, and doom-surfing just continued to sputter along at a really low level. People were using the word doom-scrolling before March. Merriam-Webster traces it back to at least 2018. But that first definition on Urban Dictionary was written about two weeks after the NBA shut down and Tom Hanks announced he had the coronavirus, which in my mind marks the date when people in the U.S. really started to realize that this thing was serious. Doomscrolling existed before the pandemic. It just got a big boost as a result of the pandemic, kind of like sourdough starters and Zoom calls. So my editor asked me to look into the word doomscrolling because the savvy psychologist is doing a podcast this week about how to manage your doomscrolling, and I'm just taking that request at face value and assuming it's not her backdoor way of staging an intervention for my own personal bad habit. I'll start with the easy part first. Scrolling first referred to physical written scrolls, like the kind you see in movies about treasure hunters or ancient monasteries, and the Oxford English Dictionary says it was first used to describe the way we read things or move things on a screen in the 1970s. Doom is more interesting, and really isn't that why we're drawn to it? It's Germanic, and at first in Old English, it just referred to any law or decree, but it pretty quickly took on the sense of judgment and then fate and ruin. Around the year 1000, doom became associated with the last judgment at the end of the world, which was also called Doomsday and later the Crack of Doom and the Day of Doom. I've always wondered about the name of the Doomsday Book— which was an attempt at a great survey of all of William the Conqueror's lands and people in 1086 to determine how much everyone should be paying in taxes. I mean, why was essentially a tax survey given such a foreboding name? I mean, nobody likes taxes, but doomsday always seemed kind of extreme to me. Well, it turns out it was called the Doomsday Book because its determinations were final, unrefutable, much like God's ruling during the Last Judgment. Back then, the word was developing a sense of the dread and badness it has today, but it still had a stronger connection to that judgment meaning. And that reminds me of another book called The Doomsday Book, a science fiction novel by Connie Willis that won both the Hugo and Nebula Awards. It's about a time-traveling historian who ends up stuck in the time of the Black Death. It is one of the bleakest but most memorable books I've ever read. I both highly recommend it and warn you against it right now, because it might not be the best time to read about a killer viral plague that doesn't end well. Or, I don't know, maybe it is. While I was on the OED website, I looked up other doom words and found some fun ones. A doom house was a judgment hall, a doom stool was a judgment seat, and a doom stead was a place of judgment. In the 1800s in the United States, apparently a doomage was a fine you paid if you didn't pay your property taxes. But the best one was doomer. If you were a doomer, you were one who dooms. In other words, a judge. Experts say it's not our fault that we're drawn to doom scrolling. We are biologically programmed to pay close attention to news about threats, because knowing the danger we face helps keep us alive but the 24-7 stream of horrifying information on social media sort of hijacks that natural instinct and becomes so overwhelming that it's unhealthy. So that's why I'm looking forward to hearing the Savvy Psychologist's podcast this week, because she's talking about the psychological implications of doom-scrolling and, most important—at least to me—how to cut back. And if I can cut back, maybe my husband will stop saying, okay, Doomer, when I read headlines to him. I never should have told him about finding that word, Doomer. Next, I have a Bill and Ted-themed segment by Neil Whitman. In the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the slacker protagonists Bill and Ted offer this advice to the world— be excellent to each other, and party on, dudes! But are Bill and Ted running afoul of a rule regarding reciprocal pronouns? The phrase each other is known as a reciprocal pronoun because it shows a bi-directional action. For example, if Bill and Ted are being excellent to each other, that means Bill is being excellent to Ted and Ted is being excellent to Bill. They're practicing what you might call excellence reciprocity. But Bill and Ted aren't talking about being excellent just to Bill and Ted. They want each person in the world to be excellent to every other person in the world. According to some grammarians, if we're talking about more than just two people, we should have a different reciprocal pronoun—one another. In other words, Bill and Ted should more properly have said, be excellent to one another. English is unusual in having more than one reciprocal pronoun to choose from. It doesn't set the record for the most reciprocal pronouns because Korean has three, but most languages have just one. Chinese, Finnish, French, Classical Greek, German, Hebrew, Japanese, Russian, and American Sign Language, among others, all have just one reciprocal pronoun. Some languages, such as Spanish, Shoshone, and West Greenlandic, don't even have that many. They use the same pronoun as both a reflexive and a reciprocal, so that the same sentence could mean either we see each other or we see ourselves. The trouble with having a choice of reciprocal pronouns to use in English is that English speakers—and speakers of other languages, too—can't stand to have more than one word with the same meaning. They'll look as hard as they can for a meaning difference, and if one doesn't exist, someone will create one. It's happened with healthy and healthful, with continuous and continual, and many others. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of English Usage, the first person to state that each other should refer to only two people and that one another should refer to more than two was George N. Usser in 1785. Since then, many grammarians have weighed in, some accepting the rule, others rejecting it. Even today, there isn't agreement. Some sources that accept it are Garner's Modern English Usage and The Grammar Bible by Michael Strumpf and Ariel Douglas. Some that don't are the second edition of Fowler's Modern English Usage and Grammar Without Grief by Martin Steinman and Michael Keller. There are even sources, such as Ronald Wardhouse's Understanding English Grammar, that propose a version of the rule that goes like this—use one another or each other when you're talking about more than two people— but when you're talking about just two people, use each other. And that rule will never catch on. People don't like rules that say option A is available in situation A, but option B is available in situation B and situation A. People prefer clean two-way distinctions—option A in situation A, option B in situation B. End of story. Despite these rules, both each other and one another had been used to refer to just two people and to more than two hundreds of years before anyone tried to force a meaning distinction on them. The Oxford English Dictionary gives this quotation from Shakespeare, with one another referring to two people, "...when we are married and have more occasion to know one another." The Merriam-Webster Dictionary of English Usage has this example from Samuel Johnson, with each other referring to more than two people—16 ministers who meet weekly at each other's houses. As the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of English Usage puts it, the rule restricting each other to two and one another to more than two was cut out of whole cloth— Since there was never any historical support for this rule, but since there are people who believe it today, should you follow it? Personally, I'd say no, but the good news is that it's an easy rule to follow if you choose. Unlike using whom or saying it is she, limiting each other to two people and one another to more than two isn't going to make your writing sound unnatural—both sound fine in either situation, whether you're observing or ignoring the rule. While we're on the subject of each other and one another, we do recommend following one restriction for their use. Specifically, don't use them as the subject of a clause. For example, suppose Bill thinks Ted is awesome, and Ted thinks Bill is awesome. How could you write that in a single sentence? Bill and Ted think each other are awesome? Bill and Ted think one another is awesome? No, people do write sentences like that, and you may have heard people speak them, and you may have even spoken them yourself. I know I have. But it still sounds awkward for reasons that are unclear. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary of English Usage notes that each other is a subject hardly ever occurs in edited writing, and suggests it might be because of confusion over whether to use a singular or plural verb It just goes to show that even when there's a logical need for a particular word, there's no guarantee that a word will be created to meet that need. This is especially frustrating given all the words that are created when there isn't a logical need for them, such as irregardless and conversate. The best you can do in this situation is to use what the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language calls the split reciprocal construction and say, Bill and Ted each think the other is awesome. That's all for reciprocal pronouns, but I do have one last thing to say about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The title is a great illustration of the rule for compound possession, which I discussed in episode 731. You can find that on the podcast feed or at quickanddirtytips.com by searching for compound possession. And finally, one more note for the people who are just learning English—each other is always two words. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent writer and consultant specializing in language and grammar and a member of the Reynoldsburg School Board. You can find him at literalminded.wordpress.com and on Twitter as LiteralMinded. Finally, I have a Familect story from Jennifer.
1: Hello, Grammar Girl. My name is Jennifer. I'm an English professor and a longtime listener of your podcast. And I have a Familect story to share. When my daughter was about 18 months old, she began using the word huggle. I'm spelling it H U G G L E whenever she wanted to be picked up by me or her father. For example, she'd say, Huggle Daddy. Before long, we started using the word back to her as a verb, such as, you want to huggle? Oh, okay. Um, the Oxford English Dictionary Online does have an old from 1899 entry for huggle, but it's dialectical for to hug, not the way our now two-year-old daughter still uses the word as pick me up and hold me, huggle daddy, huggle me want to huggle, something like that. So I just wanted to share our family like story. Thanks. Love the podcast. Bye.
0: Thanks, Jennifer, and bonus points for looking it up in the OED. If you want to call and leave a voicemail with the story of a word your family and only your family uses, like Jennifer did, the number is 83-321-4GIRL. And be sure to tell me the story behind the word, because that's always the best part. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, QuickAndDirtyTips.com, and also remember to check out the Savvy Psychologist podcast this week about doom scrolling. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams, and that's all. Thanks for listening.